I've done like a lot of uh, overlap stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the only time I'm having someone that actually overlaps with themselves. Well, that's true. <laughs> the last time we talked about uh, Lincoln and Richmond. Right. And that's sort of the after bit to this. But, yeah, it definitely definitely correlates, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's good to see if you contradict yourself. I could contradict you know. myself. I've, I've done a lot of research since then. So who knows? That's one of the great things about history, is, as you know. It's, you're always finding stuff. History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you're having a, just a spectacular day. This is episode 43, and if you like anniversaries, it's a great time to be in Richmond. Uh, you probably noticed that the, in the feed I reposted episode 3 with uh, Patrick Henry, uh, as portrayed by Kevin Grants. Uh, and that was for the 240th anniversary of Patrick Henry's Liberty or Death speech at St. John's Church in Churchill. You know, not just a Richmond event. That's you know one of the one of the most pivotal moments in American history. Um, I know they're ramping up to start doing their regular uh, reenactments of the Second Virginia Convention. Go check it out if you haven't. It's really amazing. Uh, but we're also you know every day it's the 150th anniversary of some you know huge moment in in the Civil War, uh, but this is being posted on April 1st, which is the day before probably the biggest event in Richmond during the Civil War, the fall of the city, right? April 2nd, the Confederates leave. April 3rd, the Union Army comes in. April 4th, Abraham Lincoln walks through Richmond. So that's pretty amazing. And the fall of Richmond is what we're going to talk about on the show today. I have Mike Gorman who is historian, park ranger at the Richmond National Battlefield Parks. It's really incredible. Uh, he's been on the show a few times. If you've never heard him before, go back and, and check those episodes out. Um, you know, Check them all out, man. All 43. That, that's really what you should do. Do check out the Richmond um, National Battlefield Parks Facebook page uh, for any of the events, the celebrations that they're having for the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, I know you can take tours with Mike. Uh, I think he's going to be doing a real-time Lincoln walk on April 4th, um, so exactly the same time Lincoln was here, uh, just 150 years later. Uh, And they're going to be doing all kinds of really exciting things. Um, There's a lot of fantastic stuff going on to celebrate the fall of Richmond. Um, Segway tours with River City Segs, and uh, I know the Valentine's doing stuff, so check it all out. It's going to be hard to fit it in, but do it. But I'm not going to waste too much time here because, I mean, this is jam-packed with fantastic stuff. It's kind of a long episode. Uh, Normally, I would have broken it up into two shows, but for the, you know, anniversary thought it was uh, important to get it out at, at one time. Um, but this episode is sponsored by River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond, the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. River City Segs uh, does offer mostly historical tours, they, but they also offer um, public art tours, uh, just straight riding tours. Um, but they also offer the River City Challenge, which is an excellent team-building event. Uh, has a, sort of like a scavenger hunt. It's a competitive event. 
um, for you know sort of like the amazing race sort of thing, scavenger hunty thing on a Segway. It's really amazing. Uh, you can find out more information about the River City Challenge or any of the other Segway adventures uh, at rivercitysegs.com. You can check their Facebook page, uh, their Twitter feed at 804segs, uh, or check out rivercitysegs.com, or, or really you should just call them, 804-343-6105. That's 804-343-6105. Now, I'm going to go ahead and get right to it. The conversation here with Mike Gorman. I sat down with Mike at Chimborazo, uh, the headquarters for the Richmond National Battlefield Parks and we sat in the basement. They got a giant boardroom down there. Started asking them, you know, to kind of set the table. What's happening in Petersburg? What's happening just before the city falls? What's happening in Richmond just before the city falls? Well, we're talking about at the end of at the end of March of 1865. You've got the Army of Northern Virginia under Lee stretched out for nearly 75 miles from a point near Five Forks on Lee's right, which is out in Dinwiddie County, all the way around Petersburg, across the Appomattox, uh, up through what's called Bermuda 100, across the James, and to a point roughly where the airport is today. And that's the front he's, he's guarding. And we'll never really know with any precision what, what numbers we're talking about here. It's just impossible to know since future events will caused the War Department to be burned up. But what Grant is looking at and facing against Lee at this time is, is you want to think about a rubber band that's been stretched very, very far. And that's what Lee's line is. And he's been waiting. He, he knows that you know the, he didn't have to do anything over the winter. They're just, they're just waiting it out. They're, they're just going to wait until the spring thaw happens when they can move, when they can uh, be mobile again. And he's going to launch this massive assault. Now, Lee and the Confederates had a pretty fair idea that something was coming. I think it's it's uh, it's incorrect to say that this was a, a surprise. Or I mean, obviously he didn't know it was going to happen that day, but there's lots of evidence that the Confederates were preparing to evacuate Richmond and Petersburg. Um, a lot of things were being shipped out already. So everybody could see, you know, okay, the weather's getting warm. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's coming. Now we can also say, well... Because they've been there for months. They've been there for, for nearly nine months. And, you know, the, the winter had been a real hard thing for the Confederates after Lincoln was reelected, for instance. Um, if you're a Confederate, you know, there went your hope. This is not going to be a negotiated peace. There's not going to be an uh, armistice or, or anything, even for peace talks. I mean, we're going to have to fight and we're going to have to win. Can I do this for four more years? So you can understand why desertions run so high in the Confederate Army uh, right after Lincoln's election into the winter. Uh, it's happening every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a regular occurrence. Men coming across, and you're giving themselves up. Lee's army is literally whittling itself away. So Grant's got this situation of a long, long Confederate line. He wants to, wants to attack it uh, in two places, at, at Petersburg proper and then out to the west, out near Five Forks. And that's what's going to happen. So on April 1st, uh, Five Forks is attacked, and uh, the Confederates' line's broken, and now the, the Union troops are bearing down on the, the Petersburg lifeline. Uh, the fighting out there continues into the next day, and the next day there's this massive assault. Um, 
at Petersburg itself, which which cracks the Confederate lines also. And with this, on April 2nd, Lee says, you know, we can't hold. It, it's it's over. The, the line has been pierced in two places, and he's got to get out of there. So that's the that's the famous breakthrough and also the famous message that he sent to Jefferson Davis saying, the line's, I can't, I can't hold it. The line's broken, and Richmond must be evacuated tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that doesn't get much more final and dramatic than that. Although Lee did actually say in his in his telegram, um, which probably wasn't a, a good thing to do, um, begin evacuation unless you hear again from me by eight o'clock. So that wiggle room kind of comes back to bite the people of Richmond. Uh, because a lot of things weren't done that 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 could have been done if they if it had been final, just just do it, right? It, it's over now, mm-hmm. you know. Get out. Uh, so this sort of clinging to this vestige of hope, uh, you know, you, you kind of get the sense everybody's just just waiting, just waiting rather than acting, acting. So, and is there any truth to uh, Pickett having a fish fry at this point? Oh, it's it's, it's quite a famous event. It wasn't just Pickett. It was. Uh, uh, Pickett, Fitzhugh Lee, Tom Rosser, and a couple of other fairly high-ranking officers. Uh, um, when Five Forks was attacked, they are actually at the rear uh, having a having a shad bake. And reports vary whether they were drinking or not. Uh, doesn't really matter. The point is they weren't with their commands. And uh, Pickett said, you know, they were back there. They didn't hear the battle. I mean, this is you know potentially one of those acoustic shadows that you hear about happening. Um, but when when the the lines were attacked out there at Five Forks, none of the the high leadership was not present, and this caused Pickett to be removed from his command. Um, in fact, so much so that well, Pickett really he didn't accept this. He he, he continued to stay with the army. Uh, so much so that that Lee saw him on the uh, march that eventually culminated in Appomattox and looked at looked over and said, uh, you know, is that man still with his army? That's so, excellent. You're fired. No, I don't it, think so. It, well, kind of. You know, <laughs> uh, what are you doing? Uh, but on the other hand, there's, you know, where would he go? He, his, his wife was in Richmond, which was now in Union hands. So it's sort of, you know, what's he supposed to do? Right. Uh, but yeah, this is this is this is how not to to conduct a, a pre-war thing. But on the other hand, they were completely surprised. I mean, it was it was. It's not like the Yankees were over there announcing their intentions. Right. So the the idea is to to catch them unawares, and on any given day, you might be. Doing something that you know doesn't look so good when held up to scrutiny. Uh, so I'm I'm not as critical about this as other people. It's certainly a ridiculous event, but you know how many other you know other times could this have happened to anybody, including you know some of the real high commanders? Right. They weren't going to win anyways, right? I mean, it wasn't. Well, as far as a, as far as a military victory, you know, where the Confederate Army brings the the Union troops down, I don't I don't see that realistically happening. Although. Uh, you can readily imagine a, a scenario where the Confederates continue to fight with some success uh, in either lesser numbers or by combining with Joseph Johnson's army. Um, there's there's any number of ways that the war could continue, but is is victory really an option at this point? Absent any kind of political end to the war, meaning uh, let's stop fighting, let's let's talk about this. Uh, I don't see that happening. Mm. Although that's not unrealistic, and I, I do stress this a lot, is that there there had been the, for instance, the Hampton Roads Peace Conference. You know, to uh, Lincoln attended it. He went and talked to these guys. And, you know, okay, what's it going to take? 
Now we can also look at that and say, well, Lincoln says, here's a, here's my conditions. Come back, come back into the Union and stop fighting. And the Confederates show up and say, here are our conditions. We're never coming back to the Union and stop fighting. <laughs> so I mean, these are kind of intractable right positions. Uh, but the point is, is that does it? Both sides recognize that that we need to at least start the ball rolling on a on a political end. And, you know, if you just if you just accept this as a military event, then then Lee's continuing to fight seems mad. It seems absolutely uh, insane. Sure. But you know what a what a soldier and a general in that position is supposed to do is to is to make a political end possible. Right. And so, being the good soldier that he was, he continues to do what he's supposed to do. And so, yeah, so, okay, so Lee is going to be sending this telegram in, right? Jeff Davis is at, at church. Jeff Davis is at, is at St. Paul's Church. It's, it's every, seemingly, every civilian recollection of this event. Uh, the standard narrative is being in St. Paul's Church and looking and seeing the sexton come down the aisle and hand Jefferson Davis a note, which, of course, is the note from Breckenridge of the War Department. Saying, our, uh, repeating what Lee had said, uh, essentially saying, "Come to the War Department immediately." Mm-hmm. And thereupon, Jefferson Davis rises and exits. And the standard narrative, everybody immediately attached dire significance to this. I, I don't necessarily buy that. You know, I'm sure, it wasn't the first time that Davis had been called out of church or or something like that. In fact, quite a few accounts say that, but knowing what came later and and I think it's a it's a very visual picture that's painted um, you know people began to clue in so Davis wasn't the only one other high-ranking confederate officers were in there and so the the impression must have been you see Davis get up and walk out mm-hmm. and then the sexton goes and gets another guy and he gets up and walks out and another officer is called out and another and it starts to happen more quickly and now everybody's sort of buzzing and the the preacher is still continuing with the with a sermon. Remember, Holy Week is coming up. This is this is a big deal in the church. You know, this is this is, you know, everybody's there. It's Communion Sunday, so you know this is a longer service. It's, and, you know, and now every, all the high-ranking confederates are being called out. You started to get a clue that something pretty dramatic was happening. This hasn't happened before, right? And um, apparently, by the end of the service, word had circulated that Richmond needed to be evacuated that night. So you could you could sort of imagine that post church, you know, where everybody's sort of gaggling around and talking to each other, that's what they're hearing. So as they exit the church, um, evacuation is on. So is he, is he going to be there every, I mean, is that regular every Sunday he's there or is that? By that time he was actually, he was actually confirmed in that church. Okay. Um, which is, which is very interesting to note. Uh, Dr. Minigerode was the, was the pastor there and, and he had actually confirmed Jefferson Davis as a Christian into the church, huh. uh, which is you know, you, you just imagine that, you know, sure, he'd gone to church a hundred times. Well, he hadn't considered himself a really religious person. And so uh, the fact that he had some kind of religious conversion during during his presidency, I think, is, is pretty pretty interesting. But the you know, the very church in which he, he, for the first time, you know, felt part of, mm-hmm. uh, he's walking out of now knowing, you know, this whole thing is, is pretty much kaput. Right. And so then they're going to go, the War Department then is... War Department was at Ninth and Bank. It was a right. building that it burned up during the evacuation fire, but it was called the Mechanics Institute, and uh, it's it's right there where where Ninth and Bank intersect. Where mm-hmm. I think there's a parking garage there now, like that county corner from the Capitol. Exactly right across from the corner there. Um, so not not where the hotel is, but on the mm-hmm. the, the western side of Ninth Street, 
that's where that's where that was. And so it's not a far walk. You know, Davis exited St. Paul's Church, turned right on on I mean, You can follow his footsteps, mm-hmm. walk right down to that point. Uh, in fact, if you come in April, I'm going to lead lead a tour that does just that. We've never done that before. A lot of people are familiar with my my Lincoln tour, but I, I really realized when I was researching this that we could do the same thing with Davis. Uh, and where he went, the decisions that he made, why he did what he did or didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to that. That would be pretty neat. But he, he goes to the War Department, and he, and he meets with Breckenridge, and he reads Lee's full order. And as I said, it, it, it's, it's decisive, but not enough. It, it, it says, you know, unless you hear from me, uh, again, by 8. Yeah, and so, uh, so what time is it already? It's hard to pin down. Um, most people said it was at the 11 o'clock service that Davis was attending, and then the sexton said it was a little afternoon when he gave the the letter to to Davis. So my guess is we're talking very early afternoon, before one o'clock. Right, but eight hours is a long time. It is a long time to, to uh, kind of you know do you do you go full on? Do you say then uh, okay everything to the cars now go do it. Uh, everybody, Richmonders, here's you get up in Capitol Square and issue, you know, you call people out and let them know. One of the, one of the things I'm fascinated by is how people found out. That that was actually a question I wanted to ask you. It, you know, you would you would think that I mean today obviously it would be all over the radio and the news and uh, that just wasn't an option back then. Um, and it just sort of seems that everybody got the news in their own personal way, uh, meeting people on the streets, uh, hearing these. These rumors, some people reported thinking it was an April Fool's prank, even though that was the day the day before. Uh, but you know, this interesting thing of, of hearing and maybe disbelieving, and then coming to the realization that no, this is for real. This is actually happening. Sets in, and I think it would be a little hard to mistake. You know, just walk down to Capitol Square and look around. There's people at the War Department boxing things up. They're stacking out boxes, you know, out in the street. Same with the Treasury Department. They're setting fire to the uh, to the bills that they had printed. You know, but is this going on immediately, or they're waiting until eight? We're, no, we're not talking until they, they are doing this in the afternoon. Okay, but as far as the decisive, you know, it's it really is going to happen. You, you as we get to this point, as we talk, you'll see that you know Davis was was still holding. He's, he's it's it's almost delusional, you know. It's, it's waiting for Lee to make contact, saying, "No, I've, you know, I'm, I've pulled another miracle, and I've reestablished my lines." And you know, it, it's 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 sad. You right? Know, they're just they're waiting for that one last Lee miracle that, of course, never never happens. And that's cool because there's it's kind of like that uh, like nine eleven thing. Like everybody, you know, if you say. I heard about not like everyone will come around you and say like oh I heard of where this were happened. you when this happened when I was doing and like right. so like all Richmonders would say oh man I saw the kid running down the street screaming or you know whatever it, it, I find that directly analogous and that's why I'm so interested in, in how people found out is you talk to somebody who lived through the time and you know where were you when Kennedy was shot right? where were you when you know, these traumatic big events mm-hmm. invariably cause people to remember exactly what they saw, where they were, what they did. And one of the wonderful things about the evacuation of Richmond from an historian's perspective is that so many of these people had been relatively untouched by war. I mean, it had been happening, obviously, and it had been affecting their families. It had been affecting them um, big time in terms of the price of bread, 
how you live. But, you know, women in Richmond are now active participants in events of war that are now happening. Uh, this is this is just remarkable. So everybody, men and women, are taking note of this. Uh, almost all the narratives involve being at church and hearing this, or shortly after church, you know, as they walked home, mm-hmm. uh, hearing this or, or being aware of what was going on. Remember, many of the churches are clustered right around Capitol Square. Right. Then many of the homes, many of the, the wealthy elites' homes are around Capitol Square. So, you know, this centrality of of where they are and, and how they're hearing it is, is tied in because, like I say, the, the, the houses are right there, you know, half a block away from the War Department. So, so another thing I'm th- you can I was see thinking it. about is it, uh, how are they going to find this information? I mean, how are they going to – are there – are people – I mean, obviously they're terrified, right? But, I mean, have people been saying, God, let this – like this needs to end? Or are people, you know, I mean – I'm sure there's a mixture, but is, sure. you know, are they thinking, you know, we're going to carry on forever or, you know, I mean, at some point the Yankees, the people are going to say, let's just let the Yankees win, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, no, the Confederates were very, very much not interested in that. Okay. Um, but you, you read a lot of these accounts and it's, and it's very tempting to run down that path because um, it's, it's 2020 hindsight, isn't it? You know, anybody writing a recollection understands now stuff that they didn't understand at the time. Mm-hmm. They understand what was really going on in the military front uh, that they didn't un- understand at the time. You know, they just heard guns booming in the distance, and we've heard that for nine months. You know, it wasn't, oh, that's, that's the biggie. That's the one. Uh, you know, later they're going to be like, ah, it was five forks, then the attack on Petersburg, and our lines collapsed. Aha, okay, so, you know, we should have seen this coming. We should have known. Uh, how many times has Richmond heard the sounds of, of battle? Cold Harbor, you know, 4.30 in the morning on June 3rd. 1864, and it's a wild Confederate victory, mm-hmm. or the Seven Days in 1862. So uh, by this time, I think there's, you know, the, the the hope that they have is that Lee's going to do it again. And so it's not like we really have to spend a whole lot of time worrying about what those those guns mean. Um, so it's somewhat numb to the, no, to yeah, the idea every day. Of, of, yeah, I mean. Every day. And uh, that's for almost nine months. And so that uh, they they get down to the War Department, they sure. they gonna like immediately make decisions, or they have um, Davis called a cabinet meeting mm-hmm. because obviously things need to happen. Yeah, and now uh, that's going to be at the the Customs House, which is also well, also it's still there, but it's it's been greatly enlarged. It's now the Federal Courthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he and calls his really just that center portion, exactly right. the, center, the center portion of the, the Federal Courthouse. Which you can see, it's kind of cool, especially if it's rained. You can you can see the different color marble there from the original facade. But there he's going to meet with his entire cabinet, as well as the governor of Virginia, uh, Governor William Smith, basically to, to say what's what, what what's going to happen. And at this point, the the decision is made to you know evacuate uh, the 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 train, which was is supposedly going to be there. At, I think it's eight thirty. You know they're going to. And they're going to wait, and if anything doesn't happen from Lee, we're going to, you know, out we're going to go and you know, designate what we're going to take with us, what we're not going to take with us, uh, who's going to be on the trains, you know, all these kind of things. And so that, that decision is made there, um, and the commander of Richmond, apparently, uh, General Ewell, brought up his opposition, or at least he said he did, uh, to the order which Breckinridge, now the Secretary of War, gave him, which was 
to fire the tobacco warehouse, which means to, to deliberately set them on fire. And it's very difficult to really understand who's really on the level here. I'm not saying anybody's really outright lying. No doubt Yule was positively ordered to do this. Whether Yule brought up opposition to this beforehand or not, I don't really know. Um, but the intention was to deprive the Union troops of valuable things. Tobacco and cotton being the most obvious. We're talking millions of dollars worth of, especially tobacco. There wasn't much cotton in town. But there was a tons and tons, literally tons and tons of tobacco, which could be turned around and sold right away, mm-hmm. millions of dollars in the federal hands. It's so. just money, just golden money. Exactly, exactly. It's not a vindictive, you know, deprive them of, you know, look, they don't need another flour mill. They've got lots of flour mills. You know, that's not the, that's not what they're trying to burn. So the idea was to, was to destroy the tobacco. And Ewell and apparently several others felt that this was a terrible decision, that, uh, that it would get out of control, and well, but and, and, and is this is this uh, the the government's tobacco or is this no, citizens' this is tobacco? tobacco? This is just but you raise you raise an you raise an important point there, which is you know this is the Confederate government saying we're we're burning something that doesn't necessarily belong to us, right? Uh, it's it's a point I often make uh, when people are, are trying to point up the uh, as if the Confederates were you know this. Individual rights paradise. Uh, no, I'm afraid not. They, they, they regularly violated uh, uh, traditional ideas of this, and there's and this one's no different. But again, it's, it's just the nature of they, they they see this as militarily valuable in terms of being money, whether it's uh, private citizens or not. Maybe the assumption was that the Yankees would just confiscate it anyway, being confiscatable property of war, right? And so deprive them of of that money and. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. And like I say, you know, Ewell and apparently Gorgas and, and several others said, you know, this is a this is just going to be bad. There are other ways to do it. Apparently Gorgas said that it would be better just to pour turpentine on top of the tobacco and just, you know, make it unusable or unsellable. Uh, or we roll it into the river. But there hadn't been time to do it, to gather it all up uh, into one, one spot. <clears throat> one wonders where that might have been, even if they had. Uh, that would have been more safe. But now you're... If you're Ewell, you're in the uncomfortable position of, okay, this has to happen, and it has to happen tonight. Mm-hmm. And that that's something that, you know, to his military credit, he soldiered on and, and followed the order, uh, but he seems to have waited as long as he possibly could to carry it out. But uh, he was positively ordered to do so by Breckenridge, which Davis did not object to, so we have to look at this as coming from the highest level. Right. And so is uh, are Davis and his cabinet? They're going to basically leave right then, or they're going to hang out. Not for a yet. While? This is this is one of my, you know, gosh, I wish I was a fly on the wall moment because after adjourning the cabinet meeting, which they've decided and, and practically made plans to evacuate the city, Davis walks across Capitol Square up to the White House of the Confederacy, which of course wasn't known as that then. It was usually called the Davis Mansion or Executive Mansion. and Which but I on, like to point out mostly because it's not white. Well, <laughs> also because there there was no corollary to it. There wasn't a White House in Washington. Nobody called it that. Right. It, it was the Executive Mansion. All that uh, much, comes much later. So, you know, the, the calling the White House of the Confederacy the White House of the Confederacy is, is, is a fairly recent thing. But uh, he walked across Capitol Square on his way home. To pack, 
and people encounter him. And he says that, uh, in, his, in his memoirs, says that uh, he encounters these people who ask if it's true, and, and he confirms it. And then they say, well, if we have to give up Richmond to bring victory, then that's what we're going to do. It sounds a bit hokey to me, but the point is now Jefferson Davis is is, is being personally wit- witnessing these people you know, who, who, at a very fundamental level, his job was to protect, now thrown into to chaos mm-hmm. and uncertainty. And then when he gets to his, his home, nobody's there. He had sent his family away, interestingly, the week before, anticipating some kind of evacuation. Not taking steps to do more on a governmental or military level, but he sent his own family away. I, I'd, I'd like to know more about that. Uh, so they weren't there. So when he gets in there, you can just imagine this deathly quiet. You know, all the sounds of his children, it's not there. His wife's not there to greet him. He's just alone. And he's got a couple hours before the train's supposed to be there. And apparently a lot of the, the family furniture had been sold. So, I mean, you would have looked around and seen, it's like it's like if you sell your house. And, you know, that last time you go walk through one morning, it just seems so alien and so foreign with no pictures on the wall or no personal things in the house that make it yours. The things that make a house a home. They're not there. And so he's just got to pack up his, his personal belongings and then he just sort of sits. And what went through his mind mm-hmm. during those hours? But and he's definitely not in a hurry. I mean, well, the train's not... I mean, you can't make a, a train appear. You know, it's, all that has to... I'm sure that was discussed at the cabinet meeting. I'm sure Breckenridge or somebody took it in hand. And we're going to get the, the Danville trains or as many of them up as we can and uh, start loading them up. I mean, there would have been an actual practical thing happening. Okay, prioritization of, you know, how many trains have we got? How many cars have we got? How many passenger cars have we got? How, you know, what can we carry? What can we not carry? Uh, you know, obviously we're going to take the, the whatever specie, whatever gold and silver is, is in town, which they did, uh, as many cabinet officials as we can functionaries of government, uh, a lot of the, the clerks and whatnot seem to have been given a choice. We have quite a few accounts from, from War Department workers who said, you know, you know, we were told that you know, if you have a family, go ahead and stay. You know, if, if, if you want to come, you can, but you know, it's okay. You can. So on some fundamental level, you can see that uh, in a practical way, you know, these, these bureaus are, are, are not really anticipating getting back going like they had been before. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's tempting to go, ah, oh, the fall of Richmond is is the end. No, it's not. It isn't. But, like I say, if, if for some miracle the Confederate government was established, a capital somewhere else, they would not have the the people that they'd had before. Right. A lot of them had stayed behind. But in, so while he's in here somewhat uh, just hanging out, is there chaos going on? Or are people just confused? It's strange. I think a lot of us imagine that that's when the crazy started to happen. But the impression that I get is just this slow-burning realization of what's really happening and what has to happen. Um, Men are going home and trying to tell their wives, okay, this is what's going to happen. You know, family members are coming in and saying, um, you know, we're moving out tonight. You know, a lot of scenes of goodbye. A lot of scenes of um, 
one last carriage ride together as we go home. A lot of women reported that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to see him again. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, you know, disorder and chaos, remember, the Confederate government is still here. The guards are still here. The soldiers are still here. So you don't really see any, anything untoward happening during this time. Okay. It's a really, really quiet and personal time as people make their own individual plans. But people who had been through evacuations before, whether that was Norfolk or New Orleans or, or other places, could feel what was happening. That just slow descent into disorder. Hmm. The, so that's the, interesting. There's people with experience. Oh, sure. That's interesting. I hadn't really considered I mean, that. Think about a lot of, of Confederate towns that had either been evacuated or captured. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happened as, as people became, became aware as, you know, the... The soldiers, the, the, the police, the, the city government, the state government, the, the Confederate government leaving. Uh, imagine that happening tonight. Right. right. And knowing that that's what was coming. And so are the is there any indication that the enslaved people understand what's happening? Yes. I mean, because it seems like this is a great opportunity to slap a fool. <laughs> right? You know, you're well, like, this is my last chance to get out of here. Well, and that is an interesting point. Uh, the the accounts that I've seen, and, and there are legion, uh, don't count any uh, slave retribution or, or anything like that. Um, in fact, the one who gives us probably the most information about this is, is J.B. Jones, the, the the war clerk, who says that they were they were just quiet. They were they were in quiet anticipation, kind of like the rest of everybody. Uh, whatever's going to happen now is is going to affect everything mm-hmm. and everyone. And nobody knows what that is, and I'm sure the the enslaved people were were in the same boat. What does what is this going to mean? You know, freedom? Really? What? What? Right. I don't know. And unfortunately, and it is terribly unfortunate. We have no accounts, and I'm not saying I've got some, maybe, you know, but no accounts from uh, somebody who was a slave uh, who recounted this day. Wow. And that, that I've it is. The worst thing about being an historian of the Civil War is, you know, a large proportion of your people that are witnessing and experiencing these events, you're never going to hear from. Right. And I, you know, I, 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 I can't really make this good in my mind because, you know, there, there, were, there were literate enslaved people. Mm-hmm. There are black newspapers after the war, the Richmond Planet. Um, why not, you know, recount these scenes from, you know, Give them, give them back their voice, and I don't understand um, how that failed to be, but it, it did. And so, while we have tons of accounts from uh, white women who are here, uh, they're invariably elite white women. We have a lot of accounts of Confederate soldiers, not always elite, who were who were here. Uh, we have scads of Union sources when they came in who were not necessarily elite, but they're white. We don't have a single black Union soldier. I can't. Hmm. And I, I, again, a lot of people witnessed and experienced this event and had amazing emotions about it, and I cannot imagine that the enslaved people were any different. But for whatever reason, from a historical level, that, that just didn't translate to sitting down and writing it down. Right. Maybe that's a level of, of disempowerment that they continued to feel. Uh, maybe publishers weren't interested for that reason, you know, lingering racism. But they're forever going to be silent to us, and that's just a sad fact. And so everyone's hanging out and just kind of waiting. Things are packing. There's like, seems like, uh, like ants. People went home and they work on and yeah, people um, went home and said, I had dinner. 
Uh, so, but when does that change? Because some some chaos is about to happen. Yes. And I guess is Davis going to leave before the chaos? No. Um, he's actually going to be in town for a long, long time. But the best best I can really put this into perspective is you sort of get this sense that when the sun set, things started to get crazy. Okay. You know, people are now. Having April, to, so that's like seven. This is April second. We're talking, but I mean, the sun sets about seven, eight o'clock with that time. Probably about yeah. seven. Yeah. yeah. Now right. you've got the practical problem of those who are going to leave have to find a means to do so. Which means, uh, if you've got a horse in Richmond, you can pretty much name your price. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, any kind of conveyance, like a wagon or something like that, you can name your price. The trains, the, the trains leading out of here, very limited. Right. Most. Standard narratives include uh, wanting to get a train on the Richmond and Danville Railroad, which, of course, is where the government is going. But a few people mentioned wanting to get out on the Richmond, uh, Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac uh, going north. Don't know how many people did that. A lot of people wanted to leave via the canal. And there's this crazy scene at the at the packet depot where apparently the governor of Virginia is, is trying to get on and, and other people have... Uh, you know, taking seats there, and how are we going to get the these people out? And and you know, there wasn't really you really see this. There wasn't even that kind of okay. The governor is going to be you know, uh, just this absolutely crazy scramble for transportation, uh, securing of belongings. People were taking things to the bank, mm-hmm. uh, locking them up. Uh, you know, the kind of things that you would do if faced with the same problem. Remember, you don't know that there's going to be a fire, right? Okay, you don't. But you do know that, that there's going to be disorder of some sort. And then the Union troops are going to come in. And the way that a lot of these people had been told was what the Yankees, or what they believed the Yankees did when they came in, was to immediately set to looting and all this, which, of course, is overblown. But that's what they believe. So uh, the, the sexton of St. Paul's takes all the, the communion silver down to the exchange bank. Uh, you know, all those practical things happening. So, and, and are they aware that black troops are coming? Well, if they were, they, they didn't really remark on it. Uh, I've never seen anybody Seems like saying somebody, that, something somebody would. I mean, they might not have known that they were there, but then I'm sure some of the some of the people who were in the know, like Jones and uh, people who'd worked in the War Department, knew what troops were over there. Sure, right. But uh, you know, as far as your average civilian, they they probably didn't. Hmm. And so, what times did these fires get set? Okay, now that comes much much later. So we're, we're talking about. Okay. You know, the, the problem that I've been running into, and it was a problem that I had to confront just in terms of what I believed about this, is that Courier and Ives engraving that you've seen a million times, you know, the, looking at Richmond, the flames are going on, it's nighttime, there are people streaming across Mayo Bridge uh, mm-hmm. trying to get out. They're all in carriages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's just incorrect. This is not, a, the fire was not a nighttime event. The, Which I'll probably post that. Image. I was thinking. Oh, I'm that's sure you will, and, and, and that's fine. Best, yeah, but but there's there's ample evidence that that image was made uh, after. The, I mean, it's not somebody. Thank God right. I'm here. I'm from Courier and Ives, and look what's happening before me. Uh, you know, they weren't there at the time, and there are a lot of features in there that are very post-war features. So it's, it's clear that uh, an artist came back and imagined the scene with the with the landscape that he saw then, probably in the late 1860s, but. To make it more dramatic and probably with contrast values in mind, I uh, made it nighttime. Well, that didn't happen. What did happen was the 
like I say, this this scramble for for transportation and everything, and uh, Davis and his crew are down there at the at the Richmond Danville Depot. You know, it's it's after eight o'clock now. There's been no well, word that's, from that's like around Twelfth Street. It's right at Fourteenth Street. Fourteenth Street. If you okay. know where the, uh, the Southern Railway. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Southern Railway Tap House is now. Uh, it's right where that was. But that's a different building. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yes, yeah. that 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 whole area is going to be burned out. But that's, that's a train, old train thing now. So right. But the the tracks were, you know, they just rebuilt them on the on the footprint. So the, you know, the you still get a sense for that physical footprint. Mm-hmm. But the scene at this depot must have been crazy. There there is at least one guy who's employing all kinds of hook and crook methods to get him and his friend aboard one of these trains. They say, you know. These things are packed in like sardines. People are just waiting, waiting for, for Davis to give the go. And he's still waiting, you know. Maybe I'm going to get that word from Lee. Uh, and he waits an awful long time. And apparently around, somewhere around 11 or, or midnight, the train finally pulls out from the station. And for all intents and purposes, at that moment, the real Confederate authority had disappeared. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that there are not high-ranking Confederates in town. There very much are, and they're very much still in control. Like Breckenridge stayed behind. Ewell is still there. Davis is leaving. Uh, everybody, when they heard that whistle, though, knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's there they go. It's over. But and a lot, and a the lot of people leaves as well. He's right? on the he's on the uh, uh, he's on the canal. Mm-hmm. But he's not on that train. And, and he's left earlier that day. No, he's or, he's he's already. He, I think he's. As I recall, I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I, I think he's actually on a horse. I don't think he even got – he just went on the towpath. I don't think okay. he even got onto a boat. Huh. Um, but, yeah, Davis and the, and the, you know, the species, the, the, the famously guarded by uh, a midshipman, that does not leave until much later. Like, we're talking, like, midnight. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, most of respectable Richmond is in bed at this time. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are – Nervous, they're staying up. Uh, you know, women uh, recall this said we didn't undress. You know, we we were ready for something. You know, we don't know what it is, but uh, they, they sat up. But when they, I'm sure when they heard that whistle, everybody knew exactly that that's the last government train going. But like I say, there's still there's still people in control. Now this is when things start to really slide. Is right about this time is, and and you can understand looking around. There are demonstrably less guards. They're, the Confederate president has gone. The governor has gone. The city government is still there. But they're busy trying to do all, all kinds of things, like uh, destroy the, the liquor supplies that, that were around town. And uh, you're seeing that happening. And, and, and so as the cast so, are so being... So that's a thing. The city actually destroys the liquor. Yes, Right, so that's those are separate, uh, separate ideas. We're going to set a fire. One guy says, and then another guy in a different room says, "Well, let's destroy the alcohol as well." It's so important to keep keep your spheres of government in in order here because it's not like the Confederates are all powerful, or the state is all powerful, or the city is all powerful. So, uh, the city has a practical problem: is one way or another, you know, we're all going to be here on the flip side. So, what do we do to prevent chaos and disorder? How do we keep this orderly? How do we make this something that is not going to be devastating? And so their solution was actually fairly intelligent, which was let's 
make sure we destroy all the, the liquor supplies so that whatever chaos and disorder, I mean, they probably even anticipate the Yankees being the, the culprits here, will not be fueled by drunkenness mm-hmm. and drunken revelry. So this goes back to what we're talking about, the, the waiting. You know, this, was, this seems to have been a, a proposal that came at the, at the, the very last meeting of the, of the city council before the Confederates evacuated, and there wasn't a whole lot of time to, okay, can we concentrate all this in one place so it's easily done, or can we just roll these into the river? Or So, unfortunately, what wound up happening is wherever they were, and I'm not saying, do not imagine in your mind that there's one place. There are many places where where these whiskey supplies are located, and some of them, of course, belong to the Confederate government, some of them belong to the state, some of them belong to individuals. It's a It's a practical problem now. They've got to solve it. So, unfortunately, what's happening is, is they're staving in these casks of whiskey and whatever else. Uh, you know, people are walking along and scooping it up, and there's nobody to guard that warehouse anymore. So, let's go and take the sides of bacon. Let's go, you know. And I don't describe this time as as chaotic at just yet. But you're seeing. Remember these, like I said, these guys that have seen it before. This is this is what it looks like. You know, it's the uh, you know, first the, the warehouses are thrown open and people start taking the bacon. And then people start going into the shoe store. And then people start breaking into the jewelry store. And then, mm-hmm. and that's that's what you're starting to see is, the, is that absence of authority, is that absence of control uh, becomes more palpable overnight. But it's also important to, to remember that we're talking about people who were awake at night. So uh, just like I was saying, there's no testimony from former slaves uh, there's very few people that said i did that of course not i i would i wouldn't blame them if they did uh my family's starving and the government warehouse is thrown open and there's sides of bacon in there you know what right. i'm doing i'm gonna get the bacon sure uh i probably wouldn't cop to the jewelry store thing but uh this is where you start to see those scenes of uh, you know the shopkeeper you know basically bribing the crowd you know just you know, take this but not you know leave this alone all this kind of stuff but you'll notice right now there's no fire Mm-hmm. Okay. This is happening. This is just the somewhat to be expected chaos and disorder that, that you expect as uh, centralized authority disappears. But Ewell is still under orders. But but is there military? Are there? I mean, mm-hmm. there's military around. You mentioned that. So I mean, are they are they just like meh? Or, no, or actually, most of them. This out? Most of most of the Confederate troops were out in the lines out near Fort Harrison and up near the airport. And some of them had evacuated across the river by uh, a bridge that's no longer there at Tree Hill on Route 5. Uh, some of them had gotten across the river that way. Others were coming up uh, what's now Route 5 and Williamsburg Road into the city. And they had been ordered not to move until 2 a.m. And the reason for that was they didn't want the Union troops opposite them to understand that they were leaving mm-hmm. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, and they said they wanted to wait until the moon set, which I've even gone back and checked the historical charts. Sure enough, two o'clock. So, you know, it's going to be dark. They're not going to set off any alarms theoretically, and they'll be able to get through Richmond in some kind of order, which they begin to do. So all these things are happening concurrently. So mm-hmm. the, the Confederate troops in, in terms of large bodies of troops in Richmond, there really weren't any, but you know, the guards at the prison gone. You know, the guards that, that you would have seen attending Jefferson Davis and, you know, uh, the, the functionaries of, of the War Department, you know, the guys that stood outside those buildings, they're gone. Uh, they're moving out. They already have moved out. You know, so you, you see just this demonstrably less and less. There's no 
police cordon. There's no, um, you know, guys in riot gear or anything like that like you might expect today. Mm-hmm. Just didn't happen. So you're looking around. You're just feeling it. You're feeling there's less and less. Right. It's going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you were out on the streets at that time, why not? Now, others describe that the, that the, the streets were calm and quiet during this time. So I, I get the impression that, um, you know, you should say like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, there probably wasn't much of this going on or whatever, you know, this sort of like two waves, you know, right away as, as you really realize that uh, Judge and Davis and his crowd have gone. But then, you know, you're going to sleep. Now, what happens is as, as the sun begins to rise, which occurs right around 540, Ewell finally has got no more time. He seems to have wanted to wait as long as it was possible to carry out this this order of torching things. And apparently Breckenridge ordered him one last time. Said, do it. And this is when the torch is applied to the tobacco factories. And remember, this is happening at day, daybreak. So people are waking up. And they're waking up to no guards, no police no nothing, fires being set. Um, this is when things really go crazy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you've got the last Confederate troops coming from there. They're arriving in Richmond now. They've been on the march for several hours. And they're coming into Richmond and finding this scene of absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. I mean, no order. And they said that they started to see it around 25th Street. So, you know, we tend to think of this as a, what we think of as a downtown event, you know, meaning somewhere around 12th Street mm-hmm. or somewhere like that. But no, this was this was an all-citywide event where if there was a warehouse, they knew they had stuff, it was getting broken into. It was being, uh, you know, whatever's left in there, they're taking it out. Uh, and as they came into the city, I mean, they, they said that the, the crowd, which was now fueled with, with liquor, they said you could smell it. It permeated the air, that, mm-hmm. that sickly smell of liquor everywhere. You know, people were scooping up with their cups. Even some soldiers copped to saying, well, yeah, we took some too. Yeah, it's yeah. our only breakfast. <laughs> yeah, let's get a drink. Get uh, a drink. Right. And you can just imagine what, what they saw. Uh, so, but have they not already, um, have they not already turned the city over? Not, not yet. yet. Okay. No. Uh, the Union, the Union troops, remember the Confederates move out at two. The Union troops are going to move out shortly after daylight. So at the same time, the... Fires are being set in Richmond. The Union troops are starting their move into Richmond. Okay, you got to keep that in mind because you got fires being set, Confederate troops coming through on their way out, Union troops now moving up behind them. It's going to take some time to get there. So the impression that I get is that you know, step one, fire the things. Step two, you've got these Confederates moving through, and there's absolute chaos. To a man, they all talk about this 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 mob going crazy. But I also think it's important not to imagine this mob as a singular entity, as if it's you know just one group of people moving all. This is lots of different events happening, um, and this, the Confederate soldiers are, are walking through this. Apparently, they're being ordered, you know, don't you, you know we we got to move. We right. have got to get out of here. You know, I know you're looking over there and you're seeing this happen, and you want to stop it. Uh, and apparently they're being told, you know, we, we you know, we got our orders. We've, we've got to go. Just, yeah. just let it let it go. Um, but a lot of people remarked about that, is that, that they were horrified by this. Uh, 
people reported that, the, or at least some of the soldiers reported that there were shootings, that there was brutality going on. Um, some of the language that they use indicate to me that what we're talking about is is rape is going on in there. Um, although I've never been able to to find anybody after the fact that says that's what happened, but uh, at least a couple of guys said uh, you know there were shootings. And sure, I, I'm not really surprised, truthfully, but. They're on their way out. They know it's, you know, we got a bug out. Our personal safety is not standing by and enforcing order, but getting out. Well, if you want to shoot and rape people, that's a pretty good time to do it. I guess I mean, if, that's, that's, if that's the kind of person you are. Yeah, yeah that's what you're into. This is this is your time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just, the impression I get is everybody's trying to get into the city so they can get out. Crossing Mayo Bridge, uh, Ewell and Breckenridge have already crossed over themselves. And now these last Confederates, um, Gary's, Cavalry Brigade, you know, are tasked with not only getting out but firing the bridges as they do. Mm-hmm. So there's the famous scene of, uh, you know, after having witnessed this awfulness, as they cross the bridge, Gary, you know, says, you know, all over, good night, lower to hell, and set Mayor Bridge alight. And that's the last bridge that uh, there had all the other bridges already been burned at that point? It seemed to have been burning at this time. Uh, at least Josiah Gorgas blamed the spread of the fire to the armory on the firing of the bridge. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. You know, I'll take him at his word, but it certainly wasn't going to help anything. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the fire by this time has become very problematic because the wind sort of picked up. In fact, I'm not surprised uh, if you've ever seen anything or been to like a bonfire, if you've ever seen a large fire, uh, you know it kind of creates its own weather. The, the column of heat that goes up and just kind of draws in the cooler air and it sort of swirls around. Uh, anybody who's seen, you know, the cinders flying, you know, from above, that's exactly what's happening. And those things are going everywhere. And so you was right. The, the fire started to get out of control. But now there's no order in Richmond. None. There's nobody left. The veterans are gone. Union troops aren't here yet. And... The mayor was not in town himself. He and a delegation from city council had ridden out to a point where they knew the union troops would have to come. So they could then turn over the city. That's what I was asking. That's what I was thinking. Not yet. It hasn't happened. So that's happens much later. Okay. Well, you know, if you, if you were to really timeline it out, you'd, you'd, you'd see that the mayor probably encountered the first union troops somewhere around you know, 6 o'clock. Yeah, but they weren't okay. interested in talking to him. They were, they were under orders to get on in there and mm-hmm. see what was what. But he was eventually going to meet with Weitzel and, and surrender the city. And so but, what happens there? Because I actually have uh, – I actually did post on Facebook. And I mm-hmm. get like, Jeffrey Burden, who's also on, on – I know him well. He's a great guy. Yeah, and he talked to me about uh, um, Shaco Hill Cemetery right. on an episode. Um, but uh, – The magazine explosion and everything. Yeah, well, he was asking about the um, – Actually, Mayo turning the city over. Oh, okay. Um, and what? Because uh, I, I don't really know much about the story. He was asking. He's, he said it was a great story. Is it? A good <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, uh, and it's neat because we we have Confederate accounts of this as well as Union accounts of this, mm-hmm. uh, and and even even uh, you know Confederates as they're going up to Richmond, note, oh, there's the mayor, mm-hmm. and they know bloody well what he's what he's there to do. Uh, you know, they said they came in a carriage, and I imagine they were all, you know, top hats and everything like that. And, you know, uh, I mean, this is a formal delegation. Mm-hmm. It, it has to appear like a 
formal delegation. So, uh, you know, there was there was a degree of probably of, of comedy to to seeing this August crowd there just sort of sitting in their little barouche, you know, probably with their canes there, you know, just just waiting, you know, looking for the the Union soldiers, and uh, must have been a long time. Uh, I, I seem to recall a source saying we we left at two to go down there. So you know the the, the Yankee troops we're talking about you know, they're not there till six, roughly, uh, or maybe even, maybe even later. You know, just imagine all that. Time. It's like Davis in the White House and nobody's there. You know, here's the city council just in this carriage. You know, what what do you talk about for four hours overnight? Did, right. did, did you nap? Did you? I mean, these are older men. You know, what what did you do? Uh, did you look back at the city and and you know, note that now there's this giant fire going on, and you know, can we do something? Did we do enough? Uh, all these questions must have must have been in their minds, but of course, they're not going to tell us that. Uh, but be that as it may, now you've got the Confederates are out, and they've they've burned the bridge. Here's Mayo uh, down there, the first Union cavalrymen, uh, which are ordered as they're pickets, but they're they're ordered to go up and and basically reconnoiter the city, which they do. This is from the Fourth Massachusetts Cavalry and a couple of Weitzel staff officers, and these are no doubt the first Union troops into Richmond. After many years had passed, everybody wanted to claim that their unit was the first into Richmond. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not even joking. It, it, it's it's absurd. It is it is patently absurd. And in the end, it doesn't matter because it's not like any particular valor. Right, there's no prize. Put them that well. I mean, the, the city was being evacuated. It's not like they fought for it. Basically, what this boils down to is who won a foot race. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into that a little bit in a second, but uh, no doubt these these pickets from the Fourth Massachusetts Cavalry were the were the first in, mm-hmm. and they pass the mayor who who is you know, probably hailing them, and, and they're just like you know talk to the general, you know. Right. But uh, they they just they don't care. They're 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 moving on. And apparently next they encountered uh, General Ripley's brigade, which is in the lead of the Union troops there. Uh, and the impression I get, one of the sources is very specific as to the point in which this happened, the place where this, this occurred. And uh, it's a fantastic regimental history. If, if you're not familiar with it, you need to check it out. It's from the 13th New Hampshire uh, by a guy named Thompson. And if everybody had written a regimental history like this, my job would probably wouldn't exist. You'd, you'd already know all the others. <laughs> it, it's set good. And he goes down, and he... he he describes the little rises in the hills, and it was at the second one after Gillies Creek, and you're just like, wow. So the impression that you get is it's right there, uh, pretty close to where where Route Five and Osborne Turnpike, you know, the the V intersection there, and uh, just just there, probably closer to where Tree Hill is. Mm-hmm. And like I say, that's can, a good way. You can, of the city. you can kind of pin it. Well, you know, it would be the first time you felt like you were in the city. Is okay. You know, remember enough. remember you're looking at. You know, then and now, you know, when you when you when you round that bend, what do you see? You see mm-hmm. the city, and uh, you know it's it's far enough out where you could encounter people and be like, okay, here's what's going to happen when you go in. Anyway, so uh, Edward Ripley, who's leading his brigade, sort of does the the same thing. Basically, kicks them back to to Whitesell. You know, don't don't talk to me. I got to get there. You know, I'm going. My guys are going to be the first into Richmond, and so this eventually boils down to. Mayor Mayo and uh, his little entourage making contact with Weitzel, who is very busy right now, but he accepts the formal surrender. It's a, it's a written piece of paper and decides to meet with them again where later they will meet in City Hall and, and take formal possession. Mm-hmm. I mean, the practical, okay, you know, here's the key to the City Hall. Here's the, you know, 
here's the key to this story. You know, the practical things that need to happen, that happens later. But, you know, just this, like I say, they're, they're trying to surrender to every, okay, here's, here's some Union troops coming up the road. Okay, maybe they'll take this in. No, we're not interested. You know, moving on. Uh, you know, here comes this brigade of, of finally, you know, Union troops coming in and the general's basically, yeah, talk to the, you know, talk to White, so I'm going, you know. And it, <laughs> these guys have been waiting all night and nobody will, you know, this is the most shameful thing they've ever had to do. Right. And nobody will let them do it, you know. And it, and finally, of course, Weitzel does it. But, you know, you, you can readily imagine the general's not riding at the head of the column. He's, you know, some distance back. So it took him a while. But thereupon, the, the Union troops, everybody, like I say, everybody says that we're the first in. Um, the sort of sad fact is that there were, there were two divisions that are going to occupy Richmond, one white and one black. And the... Black troops have been opposite Fort Harrison, so when they advanced forward, they encountered the Osborne Turnpike and turned north on the Osborne Turnpike. The 24th Corps, the white guys, Devon's division, uh, just goes right up Route 5. But they could see each other, which you can imagine, you know, now the sun is rise. You can look over there and you can see the black troops over there, and you can see the, or the black troops, you see the white troops over there, and they know that whoever makes it to the intersection of Route 5 and Osborne Turnpike is going to be the the first into Richmond. And mm. so this foot race breaks out. And I'm not even kidding. Uh, <laughs> officers describe running, sprinting, actively busting it to, to make this route. Throwing off their accoutrements as they went. You know, the, taking off the, the saber belt and dropping it. The sash coming off. I mean, they are booking it uh, to, to make that happen. And, and by most accounts, the, the black troops won the race. But the, they were halted. And ordered to stop there to let the Devon's division pass into Richmond. Now, we can debate all day why that occurred or whether it was a good decision or not. Um, it would seem to make a degree of military sense at the time to the people involved, uh, since nobody knew what they were getting into, and nobody really knew to what degree there was any sort of order in Richmond. Um, the last thing that the military authorities would want would be any kind of racially charged mm-hmm. incident of any sort, whether that's white on black or black on white. And so on a purely practical level, that makes some degree of sense, although it is very disheartening on a 21st century racial justice. Uh, you know, those, not only do those guys fight in a war, but they want a foot race. And right. We want a story. Do you want Denzel sure. Washington to be able to be in the movie well, and you know make a nice you know? But it it it, t- it tells us something I think is is very important to imagine. As much as we like to make these people like ourselves or want them to be like ourselves and um, have them envision a, a post war society that is biracial, uh, that's not the case, right? And that's certainly not the case in the Union Army. So um, when they're making this decision, it, it's 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 a no brainer to them. It's like, no, we're not letting the um, and that stinks to us. I mean, there's there's no way for us to make them us on racial matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that too is the story of America. I mean, we, it takes us it takes us a while to get there, and one can argue whether we've made it there or not. Uh, they sure weren't there then, right? Now those those same troops are eventually going to be marched through the city, and they will get uh, wild adulation from especially the former slaves of mm-hmm. Richmond. Can you imagine that moment? Mm-hmm. But as far as them being the lead unit in, they're not it. That didn't stop quite a few of them from claiming that they were. Uh, if you move the definition of what it means to be in Richmond 
out to rockets. Right. Which is, I don't, but. Okay. You know, we could, we could make that claim. But it's what, it's what's led to all the confusion over the years is you can readily find people from the 25th Corps saying, we were first in Richmond, 36 USCDs. We were, we're the first in Richmond. And then you really realize where he's talking about and you're like, eh. Oh, wait. So hold on. So when you said where this, the fork was, you, you were talking about Williamsburg Avenue. And Route Five? No, I actually think it's it, the the foot race. I'm if, if you if it had continued up on past where Osborne and Route Five intersect at Tree Hill. Okay, yes, if, yes. If so it had so continued up, you'd have you'd have thousands of people jammed into the road. So uh, the impression that I get is is that the, you know, they're, they're halted. Devon's division passes, and then everybody sort of moseys up to where Rockets is, where uh, white and black troops uh, seem to have been halted. Yeah, for some some time. In fact, I've, it was the second New Hampshire. I've got a bunch of guys' letters who who are doing, who are acting. You know, we we have just been halted, and I want to write to you and say we're in Richmond now. So halted long enough to get a pen and paper out. Right. Yeah, and so that's that's key. I think that's very important to understand. We're not talking about a sudden and in one swoop the two divisions under Weitzel are in Richmond. Right. It must have been very. You know, this brigade, this regiment, this, you know. So it, it wasn't like a, a singular event. People are coming in slowly. But we're also talking about the original rockets. Which yes, is, the actual. Which is up a little ways. Like kind of where there's a, a, a some, I think Wynn has buses parked under the train bridge there now. Yeah, even, even further down. We're talking, we're talking like where the boathouse is. Oh, so it's down that part of rockets. Yeah. Wasn't was was rockets not up closer at that point? Well, there's a whole street grid there. Then um, it later became known as Fulton, right? Which, sure, which was deliberately done away with uh, by the city. In that's, the 20th that's, century. that's a whole different. That's a, that's a whole different say, I just cracked the door. I don't yeah, think yeah. I want to go in that at all right now. Which, coming uh, soon. Coming on the soon. Podcast. Hopefully, we're going to get that story. I hope going. you do. I, I'm not your guy on that, but uh, it, it is a fascinating story. Yeah, I got a guy. I just uh, it's scheduling and contact. It's been. Uh, an issue, but I'm actually, it's one of the things that I'm really interested in. Oh yeah, me too. Uh, but like I say, there was this whole little village down there. So, so think about when you're, when you're on route five and you, and you come up where the, like you say, where the wind buses are and everything, you know, that's, that's coming up. But, you know, looking, looking off to your left there, you would have seen the Confederate shipyard, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this generally open area down by the, down by the river. And that's, that's the impression that I get. Um, some people were very specific and said, we were the first within the corporate limits of this. They're being very... Right, yeah, yeah. You know, okay, so now we're getting into, you know, that. Uh, was there a sign out there that said, you know, you are now entering Richmond population? You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, somehow they knew. But, again, everybody was so just dedicated to this idea of, you know, we were the first. That that meant a lot to us. Uh, so I'm perfectly willing to spread that spread that credit around while acknowledging while uh, that that their definition of what it meant to be in Richmond was very fluid. Right. Uh, no doubt about it. In terms of any organized body, it's it's Ripley's brigade, but there were already Union troops there. Like I say, the pickets of the Fourth Massachusetts, Massachusetts Cavalry had already raised their cavalry guidons uh, at the Capitol. Two of Weitzel's staff officers had uh, replaced those guidons with a, with a Union flag, and this is a full thirty minutes. And probably more before any large body of Union troops came in. Mm-hmm. So while this is going on, the fires are raging. The, the mob is still going crazy, and they don't have the numbers yet to restore order. So you got to keep keep all this in mind. This is happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and I guess one of the things, since we're at Chimborazo now, I mean, are people, is, is the hospital evacuated? Ah, that's, a, that's an interesting, interesting point. Uh, we have one good, great, great source, and to you and all your listeners, uh, go out right now and read A Southern Woman's Story by Phoebe Pember. It is some of the best reading you'll, you'll ever do in your life, and it's easy top five mm-hmm. Confederate memoirs to me. Mm-hmm. But I've read some of it. It is really good. It, it, she'll have you cracking up, and then two pages later you'll be crying. Uh, it's great stuff. And she writes about evacuation night that, that I mean, we're, we're fairly far out from, from the city, but, you know, she could see what was going on, and she saw, she said she saw the, the fires you know, in the in the, the dawn, and then then she said she could see the first Union troops, you know, because she's overlooking where they're coming, come up right past Chimborazo Hill, mm-hmm. and she she was a real jokester. She liked to uh, make funny quips, and she's really good at it. And this joke will not make any sense unless you understand that she was a Jew. So she noted of evacuation night that overnight all the Miracles of the New Testament had been enacted at the hospital. The the lame could walk and the blind could see. And <laughs> all her wards emptied out. Yeah. So it wasn't like there was a formal marching off of, of ambulatory patients. It, it just sort of, like so much mm-hmm. during the evacuation, just seems to have been a sort of a whimper, a shrug, rather than a, a shout. You know, we're going to leave you to figure out your own way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to have been what happened. But the officials stay. Yes, the okay. uh, the the surgeons of the hospital apparently did stay. Uh, there is a post-war account which I don't very much believe that uh, that one of Weitzel's, in fact, Weitzel's surgeon came up to the hospital to take possession of it and recognize his old friend Jim McCall, who had been the surgeon at Chimborazo, and that this was they became all buddy buddies. And apparently McCall was there with a tray of mint juleps. I mean, come on. But, yeah, I know. I get Where's this a lot. Julep? It might have happened, but, I mean, you know. <laughs> what? The city's on fire, and you're thinking about mixing mint juleps? Okay. Uh, but the, the story went that McCall was, was offered a surgeon's commission in the Union Army, which, of course, he declined because Lee's Army was still, was still in the field, and he'd have to continue to live in, in Richmond after the war. And so, I, I okay, I'm just not going to take a position on this, but... One way or another, uh, Chimborazo came under Union control. Right. And so they're going to – these Union forces entering the city, they're going to be going um, – I mean, is, is there – the looting stopping? Or is it like – Oh, it's uh, still going on. Someone, someone who's actually going to may, may do something or are they just – I mean, the citizens are still like to hell with you. We're, we're no, I, I, I see these things as happening concurrently. And again, it, it's, the, it's the large body of troops I think that's going to change a lot of things, you know. A lot of people recalled the moment they saw their first Union soldier in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, for them, that that was a trauma event. Right. Hello. They yeah. know. Right. So it's like, yeah. So they're stopping, and they're gaping, and they're going, oh, my God. But then when the when the large body, you know, Ripley's Brigade arrives, now, to me, that's pretty much the resumption of order. Okay, so you start to see the, the looting trickling off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love, love to get up to the National Archives and see if there's any written record of of any of these people being arrested or, right that's some yeah wouldn't that be neat to see and, um, but are they but that's not the priority right the priority is priority is the fire and and are, but so some folks go up and drop a flag up first right oh yeah and then, and there too we get the uh you know who was the first what was the first flag and uh, right you know in the end it doesn't matter 
you know, right. April 3rd, 1865, the Union flag was restored to, to the top of the Capitol, and it's flown there ever since. And that's, yeah. you do were asking me, which, uh, what, who's been on the show recently, and um, I actually had uh, um, Mark Reno uh-huh. talking about that, and same thing. He was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It, doesn't it really, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how much ink has been spilled about these things that don't matter. It really did, it did not require any particular valor. It, it did not indicate heroism necessarily. It just indicated getting there first. And that means by physically running or riding, in the case of these Massachusetts cavalrymen. And so I'm not, I'm not particularly interested anymore about who, who did that. Uh, after the war, everybody spun their tails of how heroic it was to climb up on the, you know, yeah, probably, probably pretty scary to get up there on the roof. But, you know... Okay, they saw this as wildly symbolic and important, and I'm not going to take that away from them. Mm-hmm. It's like the flag flag raising on Iwo Jima, you know. Right. When people saw that, they understood it was symbolic. It was there's no chance of you know Davis and crew riding back into town and be like, "Aha, we we're just joking." No, it it's over. Right. Richmond is no longer a Confederate town. And so, so I've also heard this. Uh, I believe from. I'm going to say it's from one of the folks that we had talked about before we started recording that may have been slightly looser with their facts. Oh. Um, but that uh, that Elizabeth Van Loo actually flies a Union flag Yeah, first. Is that true? She, or? she said she did. Okay. I'll leave it at that. And, yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, great. It's a, it's a Union. I mean, I bet you she wasn't the only one. I mean, there, there were plenty of people in, in Richmond that were Unionist in, in sentiment. Um. You know, I think we tend to make Van Lu our catch-all for uh, all union sentiment and activity that was going. And now, I mean, there were there were lots of others. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there's there's another claimant <clears throat> that says that they flew out a a union flag from the warehouse beside Libby Prison, mm-hmm. and this even got photographed at the time. There's a photograph of it. Um, so again, and this is while soldiers are coming yeah, in, or is this sure. as okay? So. Well, apparently, you know. Right. Uh, you know, the, the trick with a lot of this, too, Jeff, is it, it's like it, it's like the French Resistance. The best recruiting push they ever had was in 1947, right? So everybody wanted, you know, to say, oh, yeah, I was I was a Unionist all the time, you know, if you from the North or something. So you, you tend to have in, in the post-war South a lot of people saying, you know, yeah, I, that's how I felt all along. Right, sure. And there was, there was, there was good financial reason to do that. There was, you know, so I'm not calling them liars. I'm just saying, you know, Whenever I see this, for something that really is insignificant, like flying a flag, uh, I tend to be like, and so what? You, you're, you're just trying to right. get right on this, you know, after the war. Uh, now, Van Lue definitely had her bona fides. She's, she's, she's right, you got to respect people that keep on, like, political stickers, like, <laughs> like right. four, four elections after their right. candidate lost, and right. it still says Dukakis on oh, like, I, your car. I remember or... when, I was in, when I was in college, you could still find cars around that said Mondale. I'm like, really? Right. Wow, dude. Uh, all right. But, uh. How'd that turn out for you? Yeah, not so well. <laughs> Even Massachusetts voted for Reagan. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sure, Van Lu is 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 legit. Okay. Um, whether or not she actually did this or not, there 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 is at least an account from a guy who I don't have reason to believe that he's lying. Uh, that that night, the, the first night of, of Union occupation, that she hosted a dinner and there were some pretty high ranking um, Union officers there. Hmm. And also the former clerk of Libby Prison, Erasmus Ross, who was in Van Lu's, I don't say employ, but they were in cahoots to mm-hmm. work together. 
and and the, the boy who recalled this was shocked to find this out, you know, because he had been at Libby Prison, right, and remembered Ross as a as a mean sob, right. But that was his that was his cover, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't have any reason to believe that that's a that's an outright lie. I imagine this was probably the best day of of her life, right? That's pretty awesome, and that's, that's I mean you gotta, a day. you've got to always remember we're talking about multiple meanings here. You know, it's, it's it's not like a battle where it's one side wins or one side loses. You know, for for the Confederate people of Richmond, this is the worst day of their life. For the Union people of Richmond, for the the enslaved people, this is the best day of their life. You know, for the the Union soldiers, they're they're seeing you know, oh my gosh, you know, we could be the first into Richmond. We, you know. We're going to go home soon. And all these, all these things are commingling. You know, people have had their, their houses burned down, their, their valuables destroyed. Remember, I told you about how all the people wanted to protect their valuables. They took them to the banks. Well, all the banks burned. Right. right. Every one of them. So if you had done the prudent thing, which would be to move the, you know, the savings bonds that you had or the, the deed to your house or, you know, the family silver to, to the bank, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Gone, like, and you all had to accept this and swallow that tonight because tomorrow it's got to figure out a new way to to get by. Well, uh, well, allegedly, I guess uh, the subject of endless uh, History Channel uh, TV shows is that the Confederates mean, apparently took tons of gold with them. Yeah, well, apparently. somebody should have told the Confederates about apparently, that. They would have, yeah, they would, they would have loved to have had tons of gold. Yeah. To, uh, well, yes, the, there's the famous, uh, uh gold train that, uh, no doubt it existed, but I, I think the amount of it is wildly overstated, um, and we'll never know what actually happened to it and disappeared by the time they got to Georgia or maybe it was buried somewhere, but yeah, there's, there's been a lot of holes dug in, in Northern Georgia, you know, looking for that stuff over the years, but, uh, believe me, the Confederates were not, were not awash in specie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of the problem. <laughs> they pegged their currency to the success of their army rather than being backed in, in gold or silver, which kind of made them valueless and pretty quick, especially as the war started to turn against mm-hmm. them. So. Yeah, there's there's that. Uh, I like that. What was that movie a couple of years ago? I don't remember what it was called, but they had they had it being shipped out on an ironclad. <laughs> I thought that was the most absurd thing ever. I was like, oh, yeah, that ironclad that uh, wasn't blown up at Drury's Bluff and managed to get past the 20 or more Union ironclads that were in the James River and make it overseas. Right. Yeah. Well, what uh, these folks putting the fire out, mm-hmm. um, is it just going to be soldiers or citizens helping? Uh, this is interesting. Uh, one of the standard things that you hear about the, the, the evacuation fire is that the hoses had been cut. Right. to the fire engine, uh, we have numerous accounts saying, I saw them at work at 12th and Main, hmm. and that they had to move. You know, So, I mean, there were firefighting efforts going on, but by this time it was completely inadequate because now you've got what used to be you know, a couple of warehouses now turning out to be a whole section of the city. Um, so what, what the Union troops do, I mean, they don't come in with fire engines. So now they're immediately put to arresting the spread of the fire. Which they do by pulling down buildings, you know, identifying where the fire is going to go, and you know, destroying buildings in its path, uh, if they can, put it out with water. But um, by and large, recognizing that this is is too far for, is too far gone for us to you know uh, firefight in a traditional way, we've got to create a fire break. Right, and that's what they do. And I used to be really frustrated that 
I'd never seen an account from a union soldier that said, I did that, but I have now. And so quite a few people, when you read their memoirs, do mention that, yes, we came in and immediately set to uh, putting out the fires. And this included, this included some of the colored troops, which is interesting. So, uh, you know, once they did actually get into the city, uh, they're put to stopping this. Right. Making this stop. And restoring order at the same time. So you've got guys doing provost duty, whatever is left of the, the looting mob, I'm, I'm sure, was, was pretty much over by that time. Um, it helps to have armed guards to, to prevent that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you kind of get the sense that, that the restoration of order was really sudden. Mm-hmm. It's happened. Boom. And now it's under new management. And one of the things I think is really strange is that talk, they talk a lot about, um, I know, um, in Chestnuts, she talks about how everybody's like standing at the Capitol building. She's not here. Doesn't she talk about that? Who is that? Somebody's memoir talks about, who's that that's sitting on a chest? There's some Give me the story that you've heard. That she's sitting on a, she's like, takes all her stuff out of the Capitol and she's sitting on a, tr- a trunk and watching the city burn. I think that's that's the recollection of of Martha Stannard, um, who had been the sort of uh, I don't want to put this the sort of the elite ladies' circle in Richmond. They call it the Salon, Meditator House. But Capitol Square is uh, is is kind of the respite for a lot of people. Not only because you could breathe there, but also because it's pretty clear there wasn't going to be a, you know the fire would not extend into Capitol Square, so people were moving there. Okay, so it had been, like, and why is that clear? Well, what would burn? I'm getting the hell out. I mean, that's just you know, you know. Well, think about it. You run think, away. Well, that's true. What, what if your your house there is on Franklin Street, uh, like Stanner's house was, like Lee's house was? Um, what are you going to do to to preserve your your valuables? You know, you can see the fire coming, and it did. It it crept, crept up within a a house, a street, and a house of Lee's house, mm-hmm. um, and burned burned those out. You know, you're talking about, okay, where can I go that the, the, the fire will not burn me out? Capitol Square. So people are, you know, moving their trunks and, you know, furniture uh, there. There's plenty of accounts of that. We know that happened. Um, they said despite the heat, because, yeah, sure, all around you is blazing stuff. But that's that's probably what I would do as well. The, the thing is, I mean, I can look at a map and I can show you, well, here's where the fire went. Look, you know, and it goes like this. Countless people recall, you know, the fire was coming close, and then it shifted. Or, you know, uh, right? You, you can't tell. You know, the roof caught on fire, and and somebody went up there to, to put it out. In fact, a lot of it's interesting because a lot of these these uh, elite women's accounts feature their slaves doing this. So, you know, you think, like you mentioned earlier, uh, wouldn't this be the time you're like, I'm out of here, goodbye? Um, in a lot of cases, no. You know, so they they were still there. They were still, as far as they were concerned, you know, slavery was still intact. And you know, help help us put out the fire. You know, help us move this trunk. Help us move this furniture. You know, all that's still going on. And and is this mostly women that are there? Well, the overwhelming majority of accounts of this happening are from women. Okay. Now that's not to say it's a purely female event. There are men in town, sure. But I mean, it seems like a man. There would be some sort of cowardice if you were if you were just standing on the oh no doubt square. It, it, it right? tends to fall, do something. I think it tends to fall more along the lines of. Um, the women were the ones that, that recalled this in diaries and memoirs uh, which, later. Which I have to say is unfair because even now, <laughs> I am terrified of fire. Let's well, say I would, I would, I would be not, terrified as well. I would be getting the daylights out of there. Yeah, like sure. that. Uh, I mean, I some know. of them, some of them, sure, their, their husbands and, and relatives have gone, no doubt. Uh, others feature their husbands. There's, there's a great one. I can't remember exactly who it was, um, but she said, you know, they were they were terrified because 
the, the two brothers had gone out to go back to the shop to see if they could get anything out of their, their office, um, and nobody knew where they were. Mm-hmm. So while this fire is, is going on, where are they? You know, they didn't know, and, and they were waiting there by the, you know, at the steps, and they're watching the fire come closer and closer, and they're not there, and finally they see him come running down the street, and it's like, you know, these are very cinematic, you know, visual yeah. recollections that you, that you get from these people uh, who are experiencing what must have been a, an amazingly emotional and panicked time, so mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. But they, they do feature men, is the point. It's, it's just that the men tend not to be the ones that recall them. Right. So um, how long is this fire going to actually burn? Like how long in the day? The Union troops reported that they got it under control between 1 and 2. Okay. So we were talking about an event that lasts roughly seven hours. Right. Uh, that's a long time uh-huh. for, for a fire fire to burn. And anybody who's seen the, the photographs of, of you know Richmond's ruins... This is a devastating thing. Uh, it basically burned up the entire area from 14th Street at the river mm-hmm. all the way west to just just before the Treasure Ironworks, mm-hmm. and then north up to roughly Franklin mm-hmm. from that point. And I mean, this is basically where all the tall buildings are today. And so is uh, Churchill, are they just hanging out? There's people up there. I mean, they're I don't think just, they had much to fear in, in, from the fire. Yeah, but, I mean, is that that's pretty apparent. I mean, they're just still looking down, like, "Holy, I'm glad we don't live down there, y'all." I, I've never seen anybody say it, but I can only imagine the, the view from Churchill. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Some, I mean, a lot of people had to have been. I, I imagine there probably was this amazing large cluster of people watching this happen as at sunrise or after breakfast, you know, from from the overlook of Churchill where mm-hmm. we've been. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I often think about that when I'm up there. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of wealthy people, a lot of famous people uh, live there. And they and their wives, I mean, th- this had to have been something that you just had to visually take in. And you would have. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen anybody say that they did. Right. And so they're going to move into the White House of Confederacy? The right? they Union troops, when they, when they come in, uh, Weitzel sets up his headquarters at the White House of the Confederacy uh, and at the Capitol. Basically, every... Governmental building, the governor's mansion, city hall, the Capitol building itself, the White House of Confederacy, the Customs House, all now quickly become offices and uh, headquarters for various Union generals. So you're going to see this repurposing of of the very buildings that had had served the Confederacy right into right into Union building. And is it worth it for them to go be going through all this stuff? I mean, I'm assuming the Confederates had already destroyed whatever would have been. You know, useful. Well, yeah. As far as like they did intelligence, feel, as an historian, I applaud this effort. Uh, one of the first things they did was to start looking for and trying to gather up uh, Confederate records, mm-hmm. so they could be shipped out to the. It's now the National Archives, but that didn't exist back then. Ship them out to the War Department, and there wasn't any real preference. I mean, it wasn't like look for the prisoner of war stuff because you know, no. Uh, it's why so much still exists. At the National Archives, is that you can go up there and read this stuff. Now, the War Department, the Confederate War Department, had burned, so the records for the last year of the war, um, famously and painfully for an historian, just don't exist. We right. cannot cannot go back and get you the Confederate reports from Cold Harbor or from Fort Harrison. You know, this is just the the terrible nature of the beast. We we have to do what we can with what we with what we have, and we don't have any Confederate accounts from this or Confederate reports anyway. So those were already gone, but a lot was, you know, either in the streets or in other buildings or in, in, 
I've seen some indication that some of it was boxed up and was in the street that they just hadn't moved. Um, so they were basically acting as if you if you're familiar with you know the monuments men you know going around we are going to preserve this this is this is the record mm-hmm. and um, make sure that this is not lost to history. Well, and uh, so so it's about it's about two o'clock. They're going to the fires out one two o'clock. So um, out in terms of something that might spread, people people. Recalled that for days afterwards, right? And it's going to smolder forever, right? Because right. um, I mean, there's that the Matthew Brady photo, which is taken. You can see it. That's like two weeks. No, it's not two like weeks. So a couple days. Uh, you're talking oh, about the one from Churchill. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the fifth. Oh, okay. Um, you can definitely see what. Yeah, in my mind's eye, I can. Yeah, that's definitely smoldering. Yeah, ruins. I mean, the, the whole left side of the picture is, yeah. is all cloudy. Yeah, you look in the, the um, distance. Yeah, which. Uh, which there's the really the the cropped one at the Gray Street Overlook, which most people are familiar with. Right. But upstairs is the the whole one, the full panoramic. So go to the Chimborazo <laughs> um, Medical. What, what's the official title of this? The Chimborazo one? Medical Museum. Chimborazo Medical Museum. Right. Do it. Do it. It's free. It is. Um. So so yeah. So we have awesome. We've been talking forever, but um. Oh, yeah, we have the. Uh, you just solved a massive problem by putting the fire out. You've just taken Richmond, right? You've set, I guess sure. they've set enough hospitals. But now they have, what, how many homeless people? Yeah. <laughs> you've, <I> mean, <laughs> you've got <laughs> displaced and, persons, as they'll call them in later wars. Right, and enslaved folks that I'm sure are saying, I, I don't live over there anymore. Right. You, you've, you've got a lot of problems that need to be solved uh, right away and practically. Yeah. So, you know, we can't come in with, you know, rosy ideas. It's it's what to do now. How do you get them fed? Right. right? There's Absolutely. not a lot of there's not a lot of food in Richmond and those that that are in town don't have money to pay for it. What and, do you and do? Someone's got excess uh um pork belly because they well, some of some people have, <laughs> some people probably didn't have that problem, but uh, <laughs> uh, on the other hand there's there's one account of uh in fact it's a famous like, soldier's account uh, Porter Alexander Another great book, uh, Fighting for the Confederacy, is his, is his book. But he talks about looking at this woman going into the basement of this warehouse and looting all this this bacon and pulling it up and moving it to another nearby warehouse. And he's a he's he's just amazed. This one little woman is doing this. And and then he of course says, you know, how, how sad he felt because then that warehouse was burned up as well. Right. Uh, so she got nothing. But now, you've, like I say, you've got you've got a population that needs. Things it needs food, shelter. Uh, what to do about this? What to do about the former slaves? What to do uh, about order? You know, are there Confederates in town that are going to be dangerous? Or you know, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. You know, remember, Lee's army is still in the field. This is not right. like, oh, it's over now. Uh, so nobody's dealing necessarily with the reality of Confederate final defeat. They are responding to the practical occupation of Richmond. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're going to set up, uh, we're not, I won't call them soup kitchens, but, you know, we have tons of accounts of Union soldiers sharing their rations or giving them away. Uh, that, that basically, they're throwing open, that, that they are more orderly throwing open the stores for whatever hadn't burned. Right. Um, you know, take this. You know, let's distribute this. Make sure this this gets around. Coming with them, the Sanitary Commission, the Christian Commission are going to set up shop in Richmond and begin that, that process. A lot of the former slaves moved into uh, the hospital here, for instance, at Chimborazo and others nearby, turned them into their first homes. 
but you know, what's so remarkable to me is, and you mentioned a good point. What about these people whose mansions had been burned down? I mean, maybe they could go to a friend's or something, but now starting over from nothing. How right. do you how do you deal with that? Your shop, okay. If 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 my house burned down, I'd be set back for a decade. Okay. Well, these people's houses and their their business right gone. What do you do? No Red Cross. Right. There's no nothing. Maybe they had some insurance somewhere. I don't know if it would have. You know, if there's a southern house, would that have worked? I don't. I don't know. Um, but the fact that we have so few people complaining about that in their memoirs, I, I, it's rather shocking to me. I don't know what that means. Right. Um, but because it's the kind of event that would would have leveled me. I mean, and, and shortly after the the event, the, the newspaper publishes this long list of businesses and property that was destroyed in Richmond, and it's millions of dollars, their money. And you look at this, and you're like, good Lord, what? how are you going to climb out of this? What, what right. you know, how? Practically, how? I don't know. Did, did insurance pay up? Did they just walk away? Did, I don't know. I really right. don't. Uh, but I, I've re- never seen anybody complain about that. I've never seen anybody say, oh, and then, you might be interested to know, here's what we did. Right. Uh, and, and sort of a sad fact that most, most recollections of the evacuation end with now the Union troops are here. Right. Or how they found out about Lee's surrender or whatever. But but they don't go on. Uh, I, I wish I knew more about that. Huh. And and I also understand, I, I remember reading this, it was something about uh, how the how religion played in post-Civil War era business. Um, but it was talking about how uh, there was only one church burned. That's true. Um, and how all the other ministers made sure every Sunday to let everybody know that the, you know, the... the I hadn't heard that, but I wouldn't the, be surprised. Well, remember, yeah. too, it's, it's coming up on Holy Week. So we're talking about, you know, the, the week prior to Easter. So, you know, Good Good Friday and all that is, is coming right up. So this is... Uh, must have been a very strange time in the churches. Uh, I wish somebody had written about this for all the, the accounts that we have of St. Paul's on April 2nd. And in the evacuation, I want to hear what it was like the week afterwards when everybody's going to church a lot. Right. And so many of their parishioners are fugitives. Right. And so many of the families that are there in the pews are the husbands and, uh, excuse me, the wives and and daughters of these fugitives living in an occupied city. I mean, how do you, how do you negotiate that? Right. Right. Well, and I guess one of the things that they were saying was that that was a. Uh, the, the, I mean, the thing I was reading was really because it was the one place that you could be more open, um, because they could, you know, a lot of stuff could be veiled within sure. the, the sermons that were, you know, you couldn't stand on the street and say, you know, screw Yankees, but you could go into church and they could give a sermon that everyone in the pews knew exactly what. You I'd know. be a little surprised if they did that because remember, there are plenty of Union soldiers that want to celebrate Holy Week. Uh, so, you know, you couldn't be very overt there either. I know that there was a big flap about the prayers in the Episcopal church, which, um, you couldn't just change on a whim. So the prayers had been approved through the bishop, the Episcopal bishop, that they would pray for the president, meaning Jefferson Davis. And this was specific. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm sure all the white Former Confederates are, are yeah, let's, we're totally going to do that. Um, but obviously this is, is a, a clash with the Union occupiers. And so this gets up into the desk of Edwin Stanton, 
uh, and actually contributes somewhat to Weitzel's downfall, but this is another another story. But they were basically saying, if you're going to pray for the president, we're shutting you, President Jefferson Davis, we're shutting you down. And Weitzel say, no, don't do that. That's just going to create a problem where it doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, can we have them, you know, because you can't get the bishop of the Episcopal Church back to say, yes, changing this language is okay. Um, so they had them substitute uh, for those in authority rather than. So, so you could pray, and I mean, this, and this makes right. sense. You know, whatever's in your heart, whatever's in your whatever's in your mind, you can pray for that. Uh, those those in authority could mean what you want it to mean, uh, without it being specific. So there was a nice workaround, but right. Weitzel, you can all say president, right? Weitzel was seen as being soft on this and allowing people to pray for Jefferson Davis, but that and many other factors contributed to Stanton really wanting him out of there. Sure. Um, well, in I guess we've had, cause since we've been here, this is somewhat of a prequel <laughs> to the other ones. So we're, uh, right, we worked it backwards. Going George That's Lucas right. here. That's right. And a day later, Lincoln's going to show up. Yeah. I mean, is there anything else that you can think of that would need, if somebody wanted to, the foreshadowing of tomorrow, of Lincoln coming, or is that, I mean. It was it was quite a surprise. Can you can you really imagine? I mean, you know, all this, all that we've talked about just now plays out, uh, this, this chaos, this wild Confusion and disorder. Union troops come in. The whole city is under new management. What are we going to do? Oh, and here's Lincoln. Right. Wow. Uh, you know, there, there's there's so much there we could talk about, and so much there that that is evocative and emotional. Uh, the one that strikes me though is is you know when the Union Army comes in, uh, for a lot of the enslaved people, you know, I imagine how amazing they felt watching their their fellow African Americans and in some cases former slaves walking through the streets of Richmond. But the Union troops put them right to work, basically treated them like, like slaves. You're going to, you're going you know, to, we're not going to pay. You, know, you, you come and help us. So, you know, freedom, oh, this is what freedom looks like. I see how it is. Um, but it's pretty clear when Lincoln showed up, that was their emancipation event. Mm-hmm. That was the, this is for real now. You know, this is not temporary. This is, you know, wow. And I, I can't possibly... Describe that in words. I think that's something you just have to. No, it'd be ridiculous. Run in your own mind and your own heart. How would that really have felt? Um, and uh, yeah, you probably you're probably lying if you think you know what it feels like. I mean, I think that's, how could you? It's, yeah, it's insane. Right. I've never. My labor has never been compelled. Yeah. Let alone for my entire life, I've never been owned by anybody, and uh, that must have just been an electric event. And it just drives me crazy that. I haven't got any sources from them telling me that. Right. And especially, like, kind of going over all this stuff, it's, it, it makes it more insane of how uh, discombobulated that whole operation must have been. That's the impression that you get is, on one level, yeah, the, the arrival of the Union troops is, is the restoration of order. But on, on another level, they're making it up as they go along. Right. Um, and you'll see this with Lincoln. His, his plans for uh, what will become known as Reconstruction are very much in the air as late as April 5th, 1865. And that, that really just goes to show you that in terms of a practical, how do we do it? A to B to C, nobody was ready for it. it, it, when, it when it happened, it came down fast. And that, too, I think is important to understand. It's so tempting to look back and see a single vision, a single hand, you know, that's what's going to happen. Oh, no, it was, it was very fluid, a very fluid time mm-hmm. and a very chaotic time on everybody's front. That means even in the north, you know, getting that news, the word that Richmond had fallen went 
all every telegraph station that could receive it. They were they were printing new editions, you know, out in California as soon as the as soon as the word got out. I mean, this is this is the shot heard around the world. And the uh, that's definitely not when you want your boss to show up either. <laughs> you know, when when in the you well, that's to, a good point. You want them to be there. You know, give me a day or two to at least uh, make it look like I know what I'm doing. Yeah, he had about uh, let's see, they got there around eight o'clock. Take over the city. Uh, the next afternoon, there's there's his boss. Yeah, so. just to be like, hey, why haven't you done this yet? What, well, why didn't you? What's, what's just, going on? I don't get the sense <laughs> yeah. that, that Lincoln did that, but uh, but he's definitely going to. Force Weitzel to start doing some things he probably wasn't going to do otherwise, mm-hmm. and that's that's it's a fantastic event. Um, if you want to know more about that, you can listen to the podcast. You can that's you true. can uh, come on my tour when I do it real time on it's April fourth, awesome. uh, and um, uh, my big article about it is going to appear in the uh, Virginia Magazine of History and Biography in April. Oh, fantastic! Uh, which is, is is my version of exercising the demon, letting it out of my head, and you know, putting it on in print, which is long needed to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and just before we go, uh, switching to, uh, can you remember what you call it, executives of different power, or hmm? what were you saying that the church was allowed to say? Uh, for those in authority. For those, for the, for the others that are in authority, um, when is Jefferson, Jefferson Davis, they're, gonna, they're high talent, it's going to yeah. take them a day or two to get to Danville? Took him almost exactly um, to. In fact, I seem to recall that they got to Danville at two. And the reason I remember that is because at the very moment the fires were going out in Richmond, they were arriving. Okay. At Danville. And the does he does he know? Know what? Does he know what's happened? Like he's he's left. There's been fires set. He knew the fires were going to be set. Right, but he's moving fast. I doubt that I doubt that he knew at that time that it had gotten out of control, that there had been such a uh, you know, so much chaos and disorder. Uh, that sort of came in as others joined up. Right there, but I mean, is there any kind of indi- any indication that he finds out and whoops or you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, he definitely found out. It features in his memoirs. Oh, it does. Um, okay, so he talks about he does. Um, but he doesn't, he does, well, you know, it's the privilege of every memoir writer to make yourself the hero. So, you know, it's unsurprising that he doesn't fall on his sword about this, but he had done nothing to stop it or anticipate that it might get out of control. Um, so, you know, it's difficult for me to get him off the hook or Breckenridge. Uh, you'll actually, although he kind of takes the fall for this in most people's eyes, I, I, guys ordered to do it. What is he supposed to do? Um, you know, you can say, well, it's insane, and, and you, you know, you're morally okay not following that order. No, that's a 20th century understanding of, of these things. So I'm okay with Ewell, but Breckenridge and Davis, I don't think have really come in for, for that kind of criticism. Um, although, you know, you can't really criticize somebody for something that is in, in, in one way an accident. Right. So he didn't say sorry? He no. didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Who says sorry in your memoirs? That's just... <laughs> come on. When I write my memoirs... Man, I'm the hero. That's that's the way it goes. Right. You're still waiting for the other person to yeah. say you're sorry. I'm, I'm right. That's what that's that what a burn, memoir is. Why didn't that burn city apologize to me? <laughs> right. They should have fought hard. But on the other hand, I mean, Davis could have done a lot more to prepare to yeah. to prepare the scene to you know recognizing the reality, which he seems to have done on a family level, that this is coming to an end. That we've got to take practical steps. Uh, so I, I'm 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 pretty critical 
yeah. in that regard. He could have he could have prevented a lot of what happened from happening, hmm. um, but made no steps to do so. Well, damn you, Davis. Um, I won't go that far. So <laughs> awesome. Well, that was fantastic. That was I like good that talking to you. I like that. That was it. That was a show. Thank you very much, Mike Gorman. Thank you to the Richmond National Battlefield Parks for helping me put that together. Um, go check these guys out. Go check out Mike on one of his tours, uh, some of the events that the Richmond National Battlefield Parks is putting on. And as always, let me know what you think of the show. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, uh, Twitter, at History Replays, Pinterest, uh, all those places you can find, uh, you know, updates on the show um, today in Richmond history. Um, it's just some, you know, I was just kind of like to just post some old photos of Richmond as well. Um, again, let me know what you think. You can email me as well. History Replays today um, is at Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, or you can just comment right there at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, or, you know, if you want, do none of that stuff and, and just listen to the episodes. But, uh, but make it a great day.